You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with my good friend once again for multiple weeks in a row, Dr. Stephen Gisler, Hello. an epidemiologist at Harvard School of Public Health. How are you doing, buddy? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Dr. Mark is gone again, but I think he'll be back next week. Yeah. I think that's the hope to have him back, and we have some questions for him. Uh, so your weather over there is going well for you. Hey, it is. Yeah, it's finally, finally feeling like spring. I I think I mentioned this before, but I've been getting these pictures on my phone where we have these and it it shows me a year ago how much was in bloom. And right now, like there's a lot of trees still dead, but they're finally coming out. (laughs) Good, good. Yeah, it is. It is a little bit cold here. We're getting some rain, which is great. This is why I love Colorado. For those of you who have not visited Colorado, in my opinion, you want to come like maybe early June. Now, I know it's not the hottest time, and in the mountains, it might be still a little cold and some more snow, but man, it is green. And we were joking just a little bit ago that when you, if you drive here, you're going to be greeted by a wonderful sign from Colorado saying, welcome to colorful Colorado. Now, I have no idea who was smoking what when they made that like <laughs> that phrase, because it is not colorful. Like literally 10 months out of the year, it is either dry and brown or just brown and cold. Yep. And then they get the one month where it's green. So <laughs> I don't know. But coming in the beginning of June, it's fabulous. Yeah. It's gorgeous. It's green here. Okay. So let's get going. Number, number of normal things. We love reviews. One came in last week. Thank you so much. You can do that on Apple Podcasts. And I think there's a couple other directories that allow you to write up a little bit of review. We love to see them. It inspires us. Thank you so much. Patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. You can, or it's just pandemic. I forgot. Now I forgot, but it's in the show notes. <laughs> All of a sudden I'm having a brain lapse. I have no idea. That's so, so many times. Well, you'll find it. If you want to support us $5 a month, you could go a long way to help us keep this going in so many awesome directions and PayPal Venmo one-time gift in the show notes. We're thinking about doing this, Stephen. We talked about this. We don't know yet. So if you want to give us feedback, matt at livingthereal.com, send me an email. So Apple Podcasts has released an opportunity by which you can basically give, say, $3 a month, $5 a month and get exclusive content from podcasts. So we would never want to put our normal podcast behind a paywall because this is public information. So we would never do that. But we're thinking about to help support this and give a little bit of value. Now, all of our Patreon subscribers would automatically just inherit this through Patreon. We wouldn't disown you guys by any means. You guys have helped us tremendously. But maybe doing like once a month a uh, rotation of maybe like a book review that we uh, that Stephen, Mark, and I just read a book and reflect on it for an hour. It's a really good book to help us just navigate life. If you're interested in that, it's like $4.99 a month and you get access to that and then normal podcasts will continue to give, send me an email. Let me know what you think about that. If you'd be willing to subscribe to that, to help us, that's four, like four nine nine a month. We do that. I do that at Matt at living the Send us your feedback. One last thing I dropped in the episode on living the real, check it out. It dropped last Wednesday. This is all about three ways by which you can get your head above water. Cause I know I mentioned a lot of this idea of discovering the gift and things. We talk about this in the, of the podcast and sometimes it's really cool. It's like sentimental. Oh, that's really great. But when my crap is a mess or my mess is my life is a mess. My crap is a mess. Makes no sense. <laughs> when my life is a mess. You need to get your head above water first. So three ways would you get your head above water and then be able to discover the gift in life. So check it out. And I have another one dropping in just a couple of days. Okay, so let's get going. Here's the big thing, Stephen. I want to talk about long haulers. So now I've been thinking about this. We've been dealing with all the vaccinations, and this has been wonderful. I think we're like 33% fully vaccinated, 45% like or 46%, something like that, at least half vaccinated. So my guess is, and we we're talking about this off the recording, is that the shift is going to go probably to children soon. Now, it's always been in the media, but I feel like there's going to be an exaggerated focus on this because now we have this whole set, this whole demographic is not vaccinated. So we're going to be thinking about them. We're going to start seeing cases, I put this in quotations, rise because they're not vaccinated. So it's going to cause a more dramatic scene for children. So I want to start with this because long haulers has obviously been in the news since last April, it continues to grow. The CDC is coming out with guidelines to deal with long haulers. We just heard from a listener who actually has long haulers right now is going to a clinic. So this is really part of people's lives. Upwards of 10% of adults suffer from long haulers after COVID. So, you know, one of 10 people, this is, there's someone in your life that's probably going to be suffering to some extent with long haulers. But I want to talk about children. Have you been seeing this on the radar? We've had one of our listeners send me some information about this. Some Dr. Daniel Griffin I haven't watched it yet myself. I don't know to what extent how credible it is, whatever it may be, but it sounds like it's relatively credible. And he is saying upwards of 12.9% 
of children or he's seen suffering from some sense of long haulers. So I want to kind of throw to you, what are you guys talking about in that sense of children and long haulers, whether this is a real thing and whether this is, how do we deal with this in the coming five to six months as people go back to school, have summer vacations, and we have a bunch of unvaccinated children? Yeah, I think this is, I think you rightly point out that this is going to be one of the next major focuses as we move forward in the pandemic. As you said, we're, we've vaccinated a, a really huge per, uh, percentage of the older people in our population, the most vulnerable. Still got a lot more work to do there, but the proportion of cases that we're seeing across age groups will continue shifting towards younger age groups because schools will be open and older people will be more protected. And so the the burden of illness, it, it will make it seem like COVID is becoming more of a childhood illness than an illness that affects everyone. And I think that will really place a big emphasis on this long haulers issue because it really seems as you go to younger age groups, that often becomes uh, a, a bigger and bigger issue. Yeah. We've seen especially long haulers syndrome being prevalent among young adults who get COVID and to some extent kids as well. Now, I, I really do want to emphasize that as far as what we know, it's still relatively rare, we think, but it's really difficult to know. There's a lot of uncertainty as to how many people actually do end up with these sorts of syndromes. Partly, for, there, there are two reasons for it. Partly, one of them is because there's such a variety of different symptoms that a person can develop that can be consistent with long haulers and they vary in their severity. Yeah. It can be difficult to say whether it is in fact long haulers or if it's something else. And it also differs a lot in timing. You can develop these symptoms weeks after you had your acute COVID infection. And so it makes it really difficult to decisively attribute it to the COVID infection. Although the power of statistics and the ability to observe many of these cases over time makes it very clear that this is, this is absolutely a phenomenon. Like this is something that happens in response to COVID infection. So it's true, the link is there, absolutely. But now we're trying to figure out the more nuanced quantitative questions of how many people, how severe, how frequently, for how long. And I think those are things that we still don't have a lot of really good information about, both because we haven't really had enough time to observe it and because it's really complex. Chronic illness is a really difficult thing to study because it's usually the, the things that contribute to it are so complex and multifaceted. And, and But with all of that said, I think you rightly point out that this is going to be one of the areas where a lot of research is going to go next, because in some ways this is becoming the new front in the in our effort to to, to beat back the pandemic. Yeah, I feel like this is going to become a pretty significant fear in my mind because it's one thing to deal with COVID, which is like a light switch. It's either on or off. You get a PCR test. And either have it or you don't. And then with long haulers, like you said, there's we know that long haulers is a thing. It is a real thing. But when you come with chronic illness, there's not necessarily a light switch because it's one thing to say it is a thing. And then when you after you have COVID, then you're like, what is that thing? And then you're like, oh, maybe I have this symptom. And then that's added to the pile of long haulers. And then we have to discriminate what's actually contributed to long haulers and what's what's contributed actually to COVID. And what's something else? And that's going to, and then that whole negotiation, I don't know how you even weed through all this stuff, but I feel like it's 10, 12% of people with long haulers. It sounds really scary, but of that 10, 12%, what are the, what percentage are those things are actually significant? We've heard from some of our listeners, the shortness of breath, like really can't even go up the stairs, right? Yeah. This utter fatigue where you can't even work anymore. I mean, those are significant things of long haulers, right? You know, mm -hmm. but other things that are, that are more mild, it's hard. But then if that's lumped in, it sounds like a big percent. And is I'm sure right now it's still so certain. Do we have a breakdown at all? Or is there, a, okay, there's really only right now we're currently seeing only maybe a 0.5% chance of something like shortness of breath going up the stairs or utter complete fatigue. And all these other things are just these mild symptoms. Do we have, is there any resource to see that? Or is that still being sorted out. Great. There's like something in my memory that's popping up that I think that there is, there was at least probably a month, six weeks ago, I remember coming across some paper that was looking at the relative frequencies of these things that were observed in some region of the United States. So again, that's already a very specific population and mm -hmm. it's hard to know how much that generalizes, but I'll see if I can dig that up because yeah. I don't remember what those numbers are, but absolutely people are measuring them and we're starting to get more and more clarity about that. Yeah. And the reason why I bring this up is because I'm a dad, right? And so I have these kids who are unvaccinated. They're, they're six, they're five, they're three. 
and I kind of love them. They're cool little kids. And I, I, <laughs> most of the time. I, I don't want <laughs> most of the time. Yeah, most of the time. About 40% of the time, they're great. So I, now here we are, we're going into summer and they're unvaccinated. My right. wife and I will be fully vaccinated soon. We're thinking about going on vacation, not flying, but driving someplace. But even doing that exposes to risk. And so now with long haulers becoming in my surveillance, it comes on my radar with kids. Now I'm like, at what level do I expose my kids at a risk? Because I'm, I'm the person, like, I'm okay risking my children. Now, that sounds really bad, but like, I do that every time I go on a drive, right? Every time we go on a drive, I'm risking my children, but I don't want to do anything that's going to let's an exaggerate a risk. So I'm trying to figure out how do I quantify this? Is this something to be concerned about? Or you know what? Mom and dad are vaccinated. We're okay. If they're, I'm curious, I'm going to throw this back to you, Stephen, again, because you see the CDC talking about, okay, if you're vaccinated, it's okay to be with other vaccinated people. You can be in small groups with unvaccinated people, like one of their household. Now, I don't know the details. Please check the CDC for the official. I'm just spitting mm-hmm. uh, whatever I'm thinking of. But when it comes to children, is that a different ball game? Because if I'm going to see people, I'm dragging my kids along. So do they fall in the vaccination category of like mom and dad are vaccinated and the parents are vaccinated? Or is that a, do you see the hard distinction? Because I'm dragging, no matter where I go, unless I'm going to work, I'm dragging unvaccinated people. Does CDC have recommendations for actual families or just individuals? Or how do you deal with that mess of going to a birthday party? Right. Outside. Yeah, I mean, the, the guidelines are generally just, at the moment, they're just posted for vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals. So yeah. your calls, yeah. your, your kids would fall into the category of unvaccinated. Yeah. And so yeah. that would be, yeah, that would be that. Okay. But again, you're right, it's complex because their, their risk of anything severe happening to them from COVID is small relative to yeah. what really? yours was, for example, or mine before, before we were vaccinated. And certainly relative to what our older relatives might have been, even long haulers included, as far as what we know. It's a risk, but it, it doesn't seem to be if it were like really causing huge amounts of devastation amongst kids and young adults, like we would really notice that. So it's in that that's this is taking a step back, but I feel like COVID has really struck this weird middle ground in so many different ways in terms of its infection fatality rate and its infectiousness. And now like this risk of uh, long haulers where it's in this like murky area where it's like clear that there's an effect unclear exactly what that effect is and unclear what exactly we should do about it and how much we should be concerned about it. And it puts (laughs) us like, it is so consistently, I've been just amazed how consistently this infectious disease has put us in this position of just utter confusion. And so, and I think we're still there to some extent. Broadly speaking, I think that again, from everything that we know, young kids don't have a, they're there's not a super high risk of them developing severe outcomes from COVID, either acute or, or long hauler, but it is absolutely a possibility. And it's something that we're, we're yeah. working to get more information on. Okay. So now I have to go on another tangent really fast because this is, I've been thinking about this in the shower this morning. I didn't need to talk about this <laughs> with you, but this is, we talk about things as a possibility. Now, is that just purely like empty semantics? Because like, is there anything impossible in the realm of science that's realistic? Like, I was thinking like, because really is pretty much everything is on the table within unicorns popping up out of nowhere. I get it. That's not really possible in science, but like normal day to day are things that we're afraid of. Like the things I feel like it's hard to deal with this because like when you say it's possible, when I tell people, but like, oh my gosh, it's possible. I go, I don't think I could, any scientist could ever say anything that's like real consideration, but that's impossible. Is that even, is that, I don't think it's even, you can't even use it. That's not even a, a starter. Exactly. Yeah. So like within the sort of scientific frame of mind, we, it's funny because you should always be very skeptical when anyone tells you that there's scientific proof for something. We don't deal (laughs) in the realm of proof. We deal in the realm of evidence and it's, and evidence can only go so far as giving us shades of probability and likelihood, but it can never rule anything absolutely in, nor can it rule anything absolutely out. Science mm-hmm. is always open to the the rare possibility of something. Yeah. And, and, and and that's, I think that aligns with our notions of belief as well. There, as our experience and our logic come together to give us a strong reason to believe that something is the case, then we do take that last leap and say, I can lead my life as if this were true or basically almost always true. Yep. But even even in something as as rigorous and logically 
tight as mathematics. When we think about, this is esoteric, but when we think mm -hmm. about probabilities, the way that, that the fundamental theory of probability is constructed, when we say that, when we colloquially say that something is, has a probability of one, which means that it's certain, in mathematical speak, the way to say that precisely is that the, the probability <laughs> is one almost everywhere. And you can never, within measure theory, you can never get certainty. Yeah. Even within measure theory, it's almost everywhere because there can still be these tiny little gaps that have essentially probability zero and in the limit don't contribute to the probability at all. But even in mathematics, we hedge around this idea of absolute certainty, which is remarkable to me. So yeah, um, if we can't do it in mathematics, we absolutely can't do it in science. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> no, no way. This is fascinating. We're going to go on a tangent here. We'll get back into the in, back into the weeds in just a second. But this is this whole idea of like certainty, dealing with uncertainty. This is a big philosophical issue, or I think even more, maybe not philosophical. I think anthropological issue in the U.S. particularly. So I think we've created this artificial construct of certainty around our lives. We can everything from the most practical, easy things, from air conditioning to heat and controlling our environments. Everything's under our control with certainty. And then this pandemic is just we've talked about this before. It's just really flipped that on its head. And so we're grasping. And I feel like I just, just this morning, I just think I feel like possibility in the L, in the realm of science is well, when people provoke the scientific community for saying the word possibility, I feel like it's nothing more than just an emotional response. Like it's probability is much better. Is it probable? Well, no, it's not probable. Possibility, it's if nothing is impossible, then everything is on the table. So then everything is possible. So you really haven't really got much ground on your inquiry. What we're looking for, is this really probable? And then compare, and then I think in the end, is it probable? So with children, is it probable that my, my own child could get COVID, have severe reactions and have long haulers? I would say clearly it's very highly improbable. And then even that, some moms still raise their the hair on the back of their neck. Wait a minute, it's still possible. So the only thing the next step is just then trying to, because it's so hard right now, numbers is just something we don't naturally grasp with. And then the best thing we can do is just compare things to our normal day in life of like the things that we normally do have such higher risk, but we do them every day because it's just part of our culture and it's not that big of a deal. And so to help bring a mental stability. And I, I know this probably sounds like I'm venting all this stuff, but like this has been really on my mind. Like now it's like yeah. the next step of like, am I, am I, when I unleash my kids, if we unleash our kids to go on vacation, am I unleashing them to like some risk where I'm like a bad dad? And I think the answer is no. We're going to do our normal safety things because it is compared to our normal day in life. It's a relatively safe reality. Right. Right. Speaking of possibility, so India clearly thought that it would be no way in heck that they would ever reach a second wave. It wasn't possible. They had it under control. And it's been clearly worse and worse and worse. Another record, and just when I keep hearing that maybe went down a couple hundred thousand, like 397,000 cases in a day, which is outrageous. It bumps back up to 400,000 again the day after this. Can you give me a little, just give us a little update on India What's going on, particularly if there's anything of notice with variants that we need to be concerned about or and why it continues to rev up? Yeah. So we, this is yeah something we've really been thinking about a lot. The situation in India really continues to be pretty dire and cases are still going up and it's, yeah, it's, they continue to see really one of the worst surges of COVID that I've seen yet in the course of the pandemic. Yeah. I, I think early on India saw a earlier wave of COVID, but it was a lot more gradual than this one and even gradual relative to many other countries and they were largely able to manage it and so there was a lot of speculation as to as to why that might be the case one thing is that the average age in India is relatively low they have a pretty young population mm -hmm. overall and so that really shifts the you know the odds that a given case leads to a hospitalization or a death if just the average person who gets infected is somewhat younger so maybe that was part of it there was some question about a previous immunity due to circulation of other coronaviruses yeah. or due to people getting the tuberculosis vaccine. There's been some people wondering whether there was a link between getting the BCG and and some level of immunity. So there, there were all these questions, but essentially what they did is it seems like it, it built up this sort of notion that we haven't really been hit hard yet, so we probably won't be. And I can't say that I find much fault in that reasoning, other than I think that given what we've seen that COVID can do and how much it has the ability to surprise, I think that I, I personally probably would have advised, advised against <laughs> be, anyone being too complacent. 
But absolutely, it seems like from both studies and reports from people who have been living there, that there's that notion kind of sunk in. And there's been a lot of just the... In many places, it is there hasn't been a lot of distancing. There have been a lot of large gatherings with recent elections, with with even religious ceremonies, and and India is also just like, there's just a lot of people there. One of the things that we've yeah. talked about really consistently is cities tend to get hit really hard just because the population density is so high. You have a lot of people living together, and that's part of why we saw um, such a bad outbreak in New York, for example. And that's absolutely the case in many parts of India, too, where there's... This isn't to say that... I, I want to be very clear that I'm not wagging any fingers here and saying, oh, you should have done something different. Like, this is this is just a really difficult reality that there's just, there's just a lot of people there. And, and the, there's just no no way necessarily to have the distancing that that would need to be there to to prevent a major surge of infection. So all of that is there. There's with behavior, with policy, and with just sheer bad luck that are probably playing into this. But then, So then that brings us to the question of variants. And I think I've spoken on previous podcasts about how I generally my my predisposition is to try to find behavioral and sort of natural explanations for things before I find yeah. like biological genetic explanations for things. That's not necessarily a, a rigorous position other than in my experience. A lot of the time it's easy to get duped and to think that something is attributable to a genetic difference when in fact it's just uh, confounded by some by other factors. And so I'm usually very slow to accept that there's some sort of biological phenomenon that's contributing to this. But there's... I, I was talking with some colleagues the other day, and this that's starting to chip away a little bit with the situation in India for me as well. So one of the big questions is the, the, the dominant variant that we're seeing in India right now, I think, is the B1617. And, and the question is, is uh, did that one just get lucky? Were there just a number of super spreading events that coincided with these big gatherings that caused it to take hold? And so there's no real difference between that and the others, but that just happens to be the one that, that, that got lucky and spread everywhere. Or is it more infectious? Is it more severe? I've been holding out on, on saying for certain, which is the case. And I think that I, and I still do, I'm still really not saying for sure. I, I, I don't think we have enough evidence either way to know for sure. But some of the evidence that we've been looking at to try to answer this question is, is the sequencing of data from India. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of it. There, there hasn't been a lot of genetic surveillance going on there, so it's really hard to get a clear sense of what's going on. But one of the concerning things that I've seen is that, so one of the clearest ways to see whether a given variant is more infectious than other variants is to look at the relative proportions of the variants that are circulating in a given population. And so even as cases rise and fall, that's going to have some natural variation to them. But if very consistently one variant enters a population and then quickly goes to make a large proportion of the number of cases in that population, then that's pretty good evidence that that variant is more infectious. And we've seen that play out with B117, which is the UK variant, over and over again. Basically everywhere it's gotten a toehold Within a couple of months, it has completely taken over. Uh, it's happening in the United States, happened in much of Europe, very much happened in the UK. So that's like very clear, very solid evidence that's more infectious, more transmissible than the ones we were seeing before. Now comes B1617, and there's there's some early evidence that suggests that in India, B117 had entered and was on that same trajectory of increasing. Then some of these B1617 variants and sublineages emerged, and B117 got beat back which is very concerning because we haven't really seen that happen in other places around the world. Now, again, it's not enough data to know for sure whether that's due to some bias in the sampling, whether that's just due to, you know, what. But that for me is the clearest alarm bell that there might actually be something about this variant too that, that is more infectious than what we were seeing earlier in the year and, and potentially is as or more infectious than B117 as well. Yeah. Again, so still we need a lot more data to know for sure, but it's at least on the table that there's something about this variant too that's making it a lot harder to control. And that would also partly explain why what's happening in India right now is happening. Yeah. Okay. A couple things. The first thing was, I feel like the India story seems to confirm what you were saying a few weeks ago when I proposed that I read an article of like, oh, maybe it's because of the U.S. We reached so much natural immunity that that's why we're doing better off than, and you said, yes, and California was just got destroyed by a variant. So really, it probably could have been the variants took hold and then rippled to the east. And it's more of that we got not just natural immunity from the original, we put some quotations, lucked out by being rippled by the variants. And now we're seeing some, you know, the collateral advantage of this, which is now, whereas I think India 
being so early on hit with the first wave, it was probably more of the novel original one. And now the variant is just right. wrecking havoc with India. And it's, it's some good news, you know, I, at least from what I read, the vaccine, particularly Moderna and Pfizer, I think, still is effective with this one that yes. we're talking about in India. Yes. It may not be quite as effective as it's doing, but it still has a good, strong hold on it as well. Speaking of which, is there any indicator that this variant in India, the blah, 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 I have no idea what that is. <laughs> but has, has it made its way? Have we seen it at all anywhere in the U.S.? Or is it just now we, we just see in the in, in India? Yeah, so it's absolutely a spread outward. And we've seen some cases, I believe, here in the U.S. And, and a number of them across Europe as well. So it's here. We don't really have clear evidence if there's like sustained transmission of it here, I think. But it's been detected for sure. Okay. So, so it's important to know the distinction, at least from my own mind. It, something can actually be here and it could be more aggressive than other ones. And it doesn't mean automatically that it's going to take hold because you said it has to have what you just said. I forgot if it if it's enough to sustain itself. Exactly. Yeah. It's because with these, it's so easy to think about these sort of any virus, but also the variants in particular sort of in isolation, like what are the properties of this virus? But that, in reality, we can never do that. It's always the interaction between the virus and the population in which it's spreading. And so certain variants will be very well suited to spread like wildfire in certain populations and could die out in others, depending on how much immunity there is and how what the interpersonal interactions look like and how age structured they are and how much vaccine uptake there is and which vaccine is it and all yeah. of these different things. And so a, an identical genetic variant can look very, very different in two different populations. And at this point, there's so much variety in between countries and between regions within countries as to how the pandemic has played out so far that it's, it's really hard to predict what any one okay. of these variants will do when it's introduced into a new population. Good. So that's always nice. It's good to hear there is hope. Even though it lands here, there's still things we can do to keep it away. So another thing, double mutant. We talked about it a few weeks ago. We just mentioned it, but didn't I felt this thing in my gut? I'm like, double mutation. This doesn't make sense to me because Stephen, I remember you talking to us about like difference between mutation and variants. And mutation is like a, a one mutation, a variance of series mutations, and and then all of a sudden there's a double mutant, and that's a big media splash. So NPR corrected me, and you're going to correct us that this double mutant like horror film tagline isn't really based on scientific journals and that kind of stuff. It's publicity. Yeah. I. There's not really, to my mind, it's a meaningless phrase. It, other than that it makes it sound like we're in an episode of X-Men or something, which is kind of <laughs> yeah, cool, totally. you know. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, um, totally. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, because these variants have many mutations. B117 has a lot of mutations. All of the ones that we've detected, that's what makes them a variant, is that they have mutated in multiple locations. And now this variant that has uh, risen in prevalence in India also has a lot of mutations. Now, part of what's behind this is that there are some particular mutations that we know are of concern. And so some of the variants have one of those concerning mutations, as well as many others. Some of them have two, some of them have three, some of them have many, and, and some of them are unclear. So my guess is that this arose because someone was talking with a journalist and said that it looks like this variant that we're seeing in India actually has two of the mutations for sure that have been shown to be concerning in the lab. And it's, ah, oh, it means it's a double mutant. And, well, no, I think there, there are other things that also have multiple of these. And yeah. the fact is that there are multiple mutations that all matter. And many of them, we don't know why they matter or if they matter, but they seem to because they they adjust whether these known mutations have a stronger or a lighter effect when the virus is actually spreading. So that said, yeah, it's kind of a meaningless term. And yeah, it doesn't really adjust our understanding of what's happening in India versus the rest of the world at all at this point. Yeah. Good. Good to know. Okay. So let's, I want to throw this back. This is a totally random question. That's maybe not the most timely because we're still in the middle of it, but we're towards the tail end. But I was thinking about this when I was thinking about India, but particularly with the U S now, Stephen, you had the huge article, a publishing journal that came out back in April that was big. It was in the, it was called Science Journal, right? Yeah. Is it called just Science? Yeah. One of the biggest journal out there. You were the, the you were the, the, the first person. Thank, well, I don't thank you. you. Thank you. That's You're welcome. So, so great. You did a great thing. It was all about, now I didn't read the whole thing, but I saw parts of it. It was really looking at different ways by which this virus could right, spread. Yep. And over the next 12 months, right? and you had different models by different situations. Now, I just said, I want to pick now it's been over a year since that, that was published. Looking back, 
was there one particular model that you proposed that actually fit closely to where the U.S. happened? And I would love to pick your brain for just a few minutes of now, if we could rewind, knowing what we know now about COVID, would would you suggest or have done anything different or proposed anything different back in March and April now that we have so much more information about COVID, knowing that clearly that wasn't the case back in March and April. So we're just doing our best to get a strong world. Right. Yeah. So actually, in, in many ways, I've been surprised that the the model that we initially developed turned out to be as accurate for the questions we were trying to answer as it was. So one of the key things that we looked at was that if, if we want to maintain control of the virus and prevent it from overwhelming healthcare systems, that's going to require distancing or therapeutics or a vaccine. But at the moment, at the time, all we really had was distancing and there wasn't really any clear hopes for a vaccine or therapeutics anytime in the near future. Um, So one of the main conclusions was that if if we are going to keep control of the virus, we're probably going to have to be doing distancing through 2021 into 2022. Thankfully, we do have a vaccine, which surpassed, frankly, all of our wildest expectations. So that has dramatically changed the landscape. But I think in the absence of that, then absolutely, we would have had to do intermittent on and off physical distancing all the way through the rest of this year. We may still be, even with the vaccines, and it probably wouldn't have been until 2022 that we were really starting to see some level of reprieve, which is pretty wild. (laughs) I think that that really reinforces just like how fortunate we are to have a vaccine at this point, and at least in some parts of the world, to start looking towards the coming summer in the Northern Hemisphere and thinking about it with some sense of normalcy, like we're going to be able to see people we love. And, and and that's, that's really amazing. And I think that's really in large part due to the vaccine. So, but there were a number of, there were a number of projections there. And we looked at a number of different scenarios. One of the distinguishing factors was whether or not the virus would be susceptible to seasonal variation in, in weather and in behavior. I and my colleagues, I think had a strong hunch that it would, but we also looked at models in which it didn't, but it seems like the models where we did incorporate some variation in, in seasonal transmission that seemed to be to match the closest of, of what we've seen, where especially in the Northern Hemisphere in the summer months, we've had an easier time controlling the virus than we have in the winter months, and that the real resurgences largely happened in like January or so, which was pretty aligned with what we predicted. And one of the things that we're still not sure about, but that is whether there's cross immunity between the other coronaviruses in this one. I think that that's still a, a, a question, and we don't yet really have enough data to know for sure sure, and if that will affect the overall spread. But so one of the things that I realized, and I think this was soon after we put out that paper, but has really been reinforced ever since, is that one of the things that we really didn't account for there was the vast geographic variation in the timing of outbreaks. So the model that we developed wasn't meant for that. It was meant to look at these long-term patterns. And so they're going to be roughly descriptive of the dynamics anywhere. But one thing we definitely didn't appreciate, and totally at the time, and that I think I would have probably extended the model to look at, was what happens when you have really severe outbreaks in one location, but the timing of those outbreaks varies a lot. And part of the reason that matters is because of the distribution of healthcare resources. If you have a slow trickle of cases distributed everywhere, that's a lot less scary than a huge outbreak concentrated in one particular place, kind of like what we're seeing in India right now and many parts of India and and like we saw earlier in New York City and various places. And so I think that that would have really added an important element to the discussion of our findings and and recognizing that as we were thinking about these interventions, as we were thinking about distancing, that it was going to look very different from place to place. And in a way that we we couldn't have really foreseen at the time, but I think has become clearer and clearer as the pandemic has gone on. So by and large, I think the questions that we set out to answer, I still largely stand by, but I think that there's also now, given what we know now, there's a lot more that we could do to make it even more relevant and align more closely with the particular transmission dynamics that we've seen in the meantime. That's great. Yeah. When I first read that article, again, I looked at it this morning from 2022. I'm like, whoa, that's crazy. 2022 I suggested still masking and distancing. But then I realized, oh my gosh, of course. The only reason why I'm thinking that's crazy now is because of the vaccine. Because if we didn't have the vaccine right now and India was happening, oh my gosh, who yeah. knows what would be happening across the U.S. with these variants. The vaccine has been a game changer for the U.S. And I didn't mention this to you, but we went inside for the first time to Nana's house this past weekend. And the boys were like, just, it was the best day of their entire year. They were so excited. It was so hard to get them out. Still, my wife and I wore a mask inside because not fully vaccinated quite yet, but 
the boys just ran around and she, my, obviously my mother-in-law was fully vaccinated. That wouldn't have happened uh, without the vaccine and just being close right. to, to, so speaking of which, obviously vaccine hesitancy is still a big issue. We're seeing upwards of 24% of people still being hesitant about taking the vaccine or saying they may not take it, which sounds a little intense, but at the same time, it looks like three months ago, that was 32%. So we're seeing a slow chip away and more information being put out there. Now I want to bring this up as a, I think it's just a great example of where we need to go with vac- vaccine hesitancy and helping people get over that is the Joe Rogan show, the number one podcast in the world. And gosh, 30, 30 millions. And yeah, I don't even know how many downloads a week, but just tons. Right. And I think it's made it all over the news by now, but he, in a previous episode mentioned suggesting that if you're a teenager, there's really no need for you to take the vaccine. Of course, then that just splash of the news, got lots of feedback to Joe Rogan's credit. Uh, the very next day, he just literally said, I'm a complete moron. I'm not a vaccine hesitant person. I'm just stupid. And it totally agrees with the situation. But so I don't want to do anything to throw Joe Rogan at the bus. I think this is just a great example of the way he was thinking. And Stephen, this guy is maybe not the most brilliant man in the world. I'm not saying he's not smart. I'm saying he, but at the same time, he's well-informed. Like he, he met with Osterholm for three and a half hours in April. The man's at least informed. I mean, he, he and so a really informed individual still makes the mistake of thinking that a vaccine, the criteria to take the vaccine is just, does it matter to me? And whether in my risks is the only criteria just shows I'm sure many of us are thinking that same thing. But yet India is a perfect example of how this doesn't just concern you, that if we don't have teenagers and youth vaccinated and we don't get to a fully that the idea of a mutation that could impact everyone, including myself, is really dramatic. So yeah, I think that, I think that actually it's it's really good to hold up this example as like of that we have the ability to change our minds as new evidence <laughs> comes in. I, I think I really deeply respect that, and I'm and I'm so glad that that happened. It's you know, and, and the the more evidence we get, the the stronger the evidence becomes that the vaccines are very good at preventing against transmission as well. And there was just a yeah. study that came out the other day from Public Health England that was looking at secondary infections within households and showed that basically when you're vaccinated, your risk of spreading it to a household member really declines by quite a lot. And so all the more reason for thinking about vaccinating teenagers as well, because again, they're not, even though the risk of severe illness is much, much lower than for many other people still there. And if, you know, it, it will help us gain control over the pandemic. I think these are important questions to wrestle with because you don't want to unnecessarily medically intervene on anyone. And so I I think that also raising the question is really important. I I don't want to brush it aside and just, you know, say that anyone who says that like we shouldn't vaccinate kids is just an anti-vaxxer and we should just fall in line. And absolutely there's I I think that there is a lot of room for logical, well-meaning people to to think about this and potentially even to disagree on how this ought to play out. But certainly assuming that the safety and efficacy levels are upheld in kids, I think that it could go a very, very long way towards preventing severe illness in them, preventing long collar syndrome in them probably, and, and helping to lower infection rates across the entire population. So based on the evidence that I'm aware of, it makes an awful lot of sense, but I think that's a, that's really a conversation worth having. Yeah. I'm just so thankful finding things to be grateful for in the midst of a pandemic, the way it worked out. I don't want anybody to be affected by this, but the fact that the older people were affected first. Now, I'm not saying that I'm like, they should go. Here's my caveat is that when it comes to younger children, there is a larger safety net. Like I don't want to risk my children to stuff. So if it affected children the most first, which means we'd have to give them the vaccine first. Could you imagine the dilemma? I think it would have been that times a million. With older people, at least they get to choose themselves whether they want to take it or not. And then there's months and months and months of continued research and then new trials. Because it's not, I know sometimes I feel like my sons are monkeys, but they're still human (laughs) beings. So they're like, so even an adult and a child, granted it, it can change, but we're in the same species. So we can assume that if it's healthy for an adult, that we will hopefully the evidence will point to the same direction that it'll still be good for the child as well. So we have that and trials going on for children. The fact that I don't have to make that decision for my child and probably till December or January, it's just more evident to show the support. Oh, look, it continues to be really good. And there's no big side effects. And so I think that's really helpful. I will only imagine if it was tables were flipped, the, the trauma of trying to make the decision for my child would have been a lot harder. Yeah. Right? 
So yeah, totally. not that again, not that I want anybody to suffer through this, but continue down the line here, the rising cases were at Colorado. Mark chimed in with a text, just letting us know that uh, cases in Colorado are rising, that uh, the hospitalizations are about similar to late January. Uh, so it's something we need to take seriously, which is really hard because I just met with an employee who I love dearly, a good friend of mine. And uh, we're just talking, he's like, isn't the, uh, something about, we're putting on some kind of event and isn't the pandemic over? And oh, yeah, I, I wish, especially when you're looking at the world, the Hopkins uh, thing, the, when you look at the whole world graph, it's, it's literally at its highest point, I think, ever on the graph and on cases. So it's not only is it not over, I think we're in the U.S. It feels like it's over, but just caution to the wind. India thought it was over, too. And, and right. now I think we're in a whole different ballgame because we got vaccinations on our hands. But still, we got a, at least some sense of prudence. Right. Yep. Yep. Continue down the line. So treatments. I want to talk about this. I saw this in the news, Stephen. I'm like, what the heck? This is. I feel like this is at a, at a, at a less center field. A Pfizer at home pill for treating COVID could be ready by the end of the year. I didn't even know there was a pill, and now it's going to be ready by the end of the year. What's going on with this? Oh man, I I hope it's true. It Good. would be great. It would be great if we had a. We need. We desperately need more therapeutics. Very uh-huh. valuable. And part of the reason why therapeutics are, are especially helpful is because in some ways it helps to to reduce some of the effect of vaccine hesitancy because many of the people who are unwilling to have a medical intervention while they're healthy will nevertheless be willing to take a pill when they're sick, which makes a lot of sense. Like yep. you, you try to, you're, when you're sick, you want something yeah. to make you feel better and yeah. that's great. So would be great. Absolutely. I, I did some looking into this and it doesn't, I, I think that this, uh, this drug is still in phase two trials, maybe beginning phase two trials. So we don't have a lot of evidence yet on either safety or efficacy. And so basically what they're saying is that if everything goes perfectly, yes, then this this okay. drug could be approved by the end of the year. Which if, normally always happens in science. Usually exactly. Everything goes perfectly. Right. So this is <laughs> right. good. Right. And yeah. So the idea behind this drug is that I, I think what they're aiming for is something that could be administered earlier in the course of the COVID progression. And so basically prevent people from getting to the point of severe illness, which is not really something we really have right now. The drugs that we have available are things where once you're in dire straits, you can give them and they can help you get out of the hospital sooner and recover with you know higher probability. So this, I think, would be something more, clinically speaking, it would be something more like you would get like with a Tamiflu, I think. I don't know if it's quite on that level, but where it's like you have this and you don't want it to get worse. And so you would be able to give this drug. Now, it, it works in a very different way than Tamiflu does. It, it's a protease inhibitor, I think, which it uses a similar technology to some drugs that work against HIV, actually, and hepatitis C, basically just disrupting the viral replication process. And so it's a technology that has been used with some some efficacy in other diseases, but it still has a long way to go before, before we can start saying we have a new drug against COVID. So I think in some ways, this is, yeah, this is probably more of a, a uh, publicity stunt yeah. than anything else. <laughs> um, I'm like hopeful. It. I'm really hopeful, but I just, there's just, the data just is not there yet for us yeah. to pin our hopes on a drug like this coming through at the end of the year. So. And the next article was cure of cancer by end of the year. So yep, right. yeah, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> right. yep, it's on its way. It's so on testing. I, I didn't know this existed. It sounds like you were aware of this on a different article maybe, but new blood tests show, should show how long a COVID-19 vaccine will protect you. This sounds pretty awesome. And it's one thing, because even my wife getting the vaccine was just wondering, am I really protected? How can I know if I'm protected? Like, how did it take hold? And I'm guessing this could offer a potential confirmation in that question. What's up with this? Yeah, I think so. Actually measuring protection against an infectious disease is, is, is famously really difficult. We had pretty good proxies, but part of the difficulty is that our immune system is so complex and different parts of our immune system respond differently to different infectious disease challenges. And it varies over time and the virus itself changes. So it's really hard to know for sure if you're protected until you're actually exposed to the virus and you see whether or not you've been infected. But one of the, the things that we've spoken about before is that it seems like one of the key parts of the immune system that's responsible for giving us immunity against COVID is the T cell response, which is harder to measure than the B cell response. And so I think if I'm interpreting all of this correctly, basically this is a blood test that will help to better and more sensitively detect whether that T cell response is intact and at what level it's, it exists in a given person. And it's it will never be better than a proxy for immunity. It's This is again, like back to the conversation we had at the very beginning, where science can never really give you certainty. And but But it should be able to help us predict 
more sensitively and more more precisely if that immunity exists, which which I think is great. It will help us a lot to determine both when individuals and when entire populations are at risk of a variant invading or the same old virus invading, which is really important information to have. Yeah. Now I'm guessing something like this could be easily accessible, right? It's not like it has to go tons of testing. It's just a blood test. I don't know how someone's, oh, I'm interested in this. I'd love to get a blood test. I'm guessing right now it's probably not readily available. You just can't call your doctor to get a blood test for this. But I'd imagine relatively soon you probably could. It doesn't probably take a lot of testing for this. Or am I wrong to think, no, they usually take six months or a year to like really make sure they're Tests. Could this be accessible soon, do you think? Yeah, I don't actually know. And I don't know what sorts of resources it takes to actually run the test either. Oh, so one of the sure. big sort of principles within within clinical medicine is that you really only test for something when it will change the the way that you intervene, the way that you, your clinical course. And part of that is because you don't want to be testing everybody for everything because we just don't we just yeah. can't. We just don't have the resources for Makes that. Sense. And especially with something like this. So I think that may be possible. That may be a reality. But I think that that practically speaking, it's unlikely that you'll be able to just phone up your doctor and ask, hey, can I see if I'm immune to COVID? Chances sure. are they'll only run it in people who they think are at high risk yeah. and potentially working a job where they're going to be exposed a lot and have comorbidities or of high age so that they can determine whether that person needs to protect themselves in some way beyond yeah. what they've already been protected against. So I, okay. I think that that's probably the more likely reality, but we'll see. Okay. Makes sense. Good. So now I heard about another vaccine coming up. I know, I think maybe you were looking some stuff up, but Novavax, I had a couple articles, the Dark Horse COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, I'm not sure why Dark Horse, but nonetheless, it's in a couple articles, but it sounds like this is really promising because up to this point, we've had Moderna and Pfizer, these heavy hitters, and then AstraZeneca and then Johnson & Johnson, not such a heavy hitter, but nonetheless, very effective. It sounds like Novavax would be when it's, I don't know how close it is being approved. It sounds like it's on the horizon. It's the next one that'll be made available probably. And its efficacy is on the order of Moderna and Pfizer. Any talk about this in your neck of the woods? Or is this something that's relatively new on your horizon as well? Yeah, so this is actually relatively new on my horizon as well. I think in part because thankfully now we actually do have sort of an array of approved vaccines that are available now. And that's what yeah. we badly need. We we like just need to get these things in people's arms at the moment. Now I I need to look more deeply. I admittedly have not really looked much at the Novavax technology or sort of what what distinguishes it from those around it. But I think that that'll be really important because again, especially as we're thinking about as we really want to push to get the world vaccinated as much as we can, different constraints in different places will make different mm. vaccines more or less appealing, depending on the cost, yeah. depending on the storage constraints, depending on the shelf stability, all of these different things. And so depending on what niche this particular vaccine holds, yeah. it, it could be a really important player as we continue to roll vaccines out worldwide. But that said, right now, I think that part of the reason it hasn't crossed my radar is because we're thinking so much about just like, how do we get Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson administered, distributed? Yeah. And that's really sort of like the big push right now. But it'll be interesting to see as yeah. we get more data on this one as well. Great. Now, this article, you thought it was relatively humorous. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so this article, I found this from the Fox News, and I was curious because I wondered to what extent this might be a realistic criteria or measurement. This article, swollen lymph nodes following COVID-19 vaccination could mean you already had virus, study suggests. So what's up with this? Is this a possibility that that'd be true? Yeah, yeah. So I think this is really interesting. So just to run a little statistics experiment, if you're living in the United States and you get the vaccine and you stub your toe that afternoon, you have a one in three chance of having had COVID before you got the vaccine, right? That's crazy, right? 33% chance of having COVID. Because, yeah, it's you know, crazy. But, but that's, that's the thing is that no matter what happens, you have a one in three chance. It basically, we think that yeah. probably a third of people in the United States have been infected with COVID yeah. at some point up to this point mm -hmm. in the pandemic. Now, I'm saying that a little bit facetiously because there's, I, I do think that there's something important that this study is saying. So what makes a swollen lymph node different than a stubbed toe? There's a mechanistic reason to believe that your lymph nodes are, are responsible. They're like where many of your immune cells are produced and processed. And so in some ways, a swollen lymph node is an indicator that your immune system yeah. is working. And, and so if you have a swollen lymph node that suggests that your immune system is doing something, 
Furthermore, this is similar to the way in which generally people have reported having more severe side effects after their second dose, because their immune system has been primed by the first dose, and then the second dose comes in and sort of like gives you the two punch on the one two punch and gives you that that full on immune response. Now, if you've had COVID previously, you've basically already primed your immune system. And so then when you get the vaccine, you're going to feel that in certain ways. And so there, it may well be true that, that there's a higher rate of people reporting swollen lymph nodes who have had previous COVID infection. But I can also guarantee you that there are people who have not had COVID infection who are also reporting swollen lymph nodes because that's just the way your immune system works. When you get mm-hmm. a vaccine probably you're going to get swollen lymph nodes. And that may be related to a previous infection. It may be a higher risk if you have a previous infection. But the direction of causality doesn't really work out very well. I think that maybe previous infection plus vaccine equals swollen lymph nodes. But vaccine plus swollen lymph nodes does not necessarily equal previous infection. One is contained within the other, but not vice versa. Yeah. So if you have swollen lymph nodes after you get the vaccine, maybe you did have COVID. But maybe not. And I don't think that it's a very good indicator. And I wouldn't hang my hat on it. That's good to know. Because my wife has some swollen lymph nodes when she had it. And I didn't even think about that because I'll put this in the show notes. A a nice little podcast, Decoding COVID. Steven, you were on that for a second episode with John. Mm -hmm. And he only has two episodes. But the first episode, it was about some virologists. And they taught me a lot about uh, the lymph nodes and how basically they called it like a dojo. That it was like a dojo to train fighters to do their job. Yep. And so then I just took that metaphor and ran with them. Like, clearly, if you get the vaccine, dude, you're ramping up your dojo. You're training <laughs> fighters. So yeah. the chance of you having some swollen lymph nodes makes me think they're doing their job. The dojo is full and they're all getting their black belts so that they can <laughs> kick some butt if they That's see right. it. That's <laughs> right. right. That's exactly okay. it. Yeah. Good. All right. There we go with that one. So check out Decoding COVID. A couple great episodes. And Steven was awesome on that on episode two. So check it out in the show notes. Okay. We got to wind this up. We're getting a little long. So we're going to skip a couple of things and go into, let me see. Oh, let's end with this. Fully vaccinated people don't need to wear masks outdoors unless in a crowd shot. This is from the CDC. Let everybody know that at least there's been an update on that for exposure. I'll put this in the show notes. A couple, a few scientists weigh in about outside masking and when to do it, when to not. And obviously it's, it's pretty self-explanatory. If you're, it was a nice little criteria. It said basically outdoors, social, some spacing, and then wearing masks. And he said, they basically said, you want two of those three. If you can get two of those three, you're doing great. So outdoors, if you got some distance, hey, go get them, Tiger. You're good. Uh, otherwise, maybe be safe. Still wear a mask, right? We're still out of this pandemic, especially worldwide, for sure. Okay. I think that's all for now. There's a couple other things I think I wanted to chat about, but I don't see it immediately on my notes. But we'll get to it next week because we'll cool. be back. All right. Again, if you can leave a review, do it on Pandemic Podcast or not Pandemic Podcast, on Apple Podcasts. We'd love that. Support us, patreon.com slash pandemic podcast, as well as one time Venmo, PayPal, all in the show notes. And yes, email us, madalivingthereal.com. If you're interested in having a special little episode once a month about a book review that, that Stephen, Mark, and I reflect upon and how we integrate in our own life is a way to help us continue this to go and go strongly. Okay. Hope everyone has a wonderful week. We will see you guys all next Monday. Take care and bye-bye.